Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series, featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag #FashionCulture. I want to say that it was my colleague Fred Dennis who came up with the idea for this show. He and I were crossing 7th Avenue going out to lunch, talking as we often do about possible ideas for future shows. And he said, wouldn't it be fabulous to do a show about gays and fashion? And I immediately thought, this is brilliant. I don't think anyone's ever done anything on this. And it's such an important topic. In fact, of course, gays and lesbians have long been hidden from history, including the history of fashion. Yet fashion and style have been immensely important for the LGBTQ community for many years. When we started, we thought the show would just be about 20th century fashion. But as it turned out, it was clear that uh, gays had been involved in fashion for more than 300 years. This was one of the biggest surprises we found. We also found that surprisingly little scholarship had been done on the fashion as a site of gay cultural construction. There'd been a few small but pioneering exhibitions at LGBTQ centers. There'd been one exhibition in Switzerland, Gay Chic, about images of gay style. But there'd never been a really big full-scale fashion exhibition exploring the aesthetic sensibilities and dress choices made by LGBTQ people. Because once we cross fashion history, with history of sexuality and queer studies, we see how absolutely central gay culture has been to the creation of modern fashion. So, well, long before Oscar Wilde became an icon of queer sexuality, it turns out that uh, there was a fraternity of pretty gentlemen, quote unquote, united by, quote, mutual love, end quote, who were influencing fashion. Back in the 18th century, uh, the press described in particular three categories of men. Now most of this press comes from uh, 18th century England. And obviously same-sex love has existed throughout world history and across cultures, from ancient Greece to ancient China. Um, but many historians of sexuality believe that the first kind of proto-modern gay subculture occurred in cities in Northern Europe in the 18th century, cities like London and Paris and Amsterdam. So as I said, there were three categories of men who first attracted mostly negative press attention. Uh, first were the so-called Mollies, uh, effeminate cross-dressing sodomites uh, who met in clubs, coffee houses, and bars, which were known as Molly houses, where they socialized, cross-dressed in public, and interestingly had ceremonies including mock marriages. So we put together an outfit of the kind of things like the little red riding hood, the corset, the petticoat, the woman's shoes that would have been worn by an 18th century Molly. Then the second category uh, were the macaronis, stylish men whose foppishness called into question ideas of masculinity. And then the third category were the so-called man milliners, men in the fashion trades who made or sold women's clothes. And they were described in the press as a club of young bachelors who invent fashions for ladies. And there were lots of um, 
prints and caricatures, and you see them described in novels and plays of the period. Now, in his youth, Oscar Wilde uh, was a famous advocate for aesthetic dress for both men and women. And these actual examples of men's aesthetic dress are almost impossible to find. But we did put in an example of women's aesthetic dress. However, by the mid-1880s, Wilde had repositioned himself as a dandy who celebrated what he called in another context the dangerous and delightful distinction of being different. Now you might wonder what was different about dandyism since many heterosexual men were dandies. But the idea was if you paid a great deal of attention to every detail of masculine dress, it violated norms that insisted that men were not really supposed to be interested in dress. This is a caricature or rather an identifying illustration from a book uncovered uh, and reproduced in the book Gay New York, uh, talking about a New York gay man in the middle, mid to second half of the uh, 19th century who's wearing styles somewhat inspired by Oscar Wilde and were, which were associated with being gay. Uh, there were also, of course, many elegant dandies such as the Count Robert de Montesquieu. And we tried to include in the exhibition examples of the kind of elegant dandyish dress that would have been worn by gay men and that continue to influence gay self-perception because the dandy continues to be kind of icon of gay uh, fashion sensibility. Nor was it only uh, men who were dandies. The sapphic subculture that developed in late 19th and early 20th century Europe was closely associated with dandyish menswear. And many lesbians adopted tailored suits, starched white collars, neckties, short hair, and other accessories like monocles and neckties associated with elite menswear. So here you see in the exhibition, we have um, various examples from aesthetic dress, historical dandy attire, contemporary dandy attire, uh, 19th, early 20th century, and then 1930s lesbian elegance. During the 1920s, fashion was radically transformed by a style known as la garçon, which uh, was named after a controversial novel about a modern liberated young woman who slept not only with a variety of men before marriage, but also with another woman. And this style uh, was extremely controversial because it seemed to contemporaries to abolish the distinction between men and women. They were, women were wearing short hair, they were smoking, drinking, wearing mannish looking clothes, going out exploring sex. Um, the clothes tended to minimize breast and hips and create a kind of androgynous boyish look. Although widely fashionable, this look was also closely associated with lesbian subcultures, for example, in cities like Paris. And in cabarets and lesbian bars like Le Monocle and Fetiche in Montmartre, quote, many ladies willingly dress in the style of gentlemen. Short hair, not a la garçon in the style of the boyish girl, but really a la garçon in the style of the female boy. Here you see some of the images, some of the clothes that we've put up here. And you see in back, 
we have an image of a lesbian club, and in front we have a variety of range of garçon-like styles by a variety of different designers, including in the center the tweed woman's suit designed by Chanel. Now, Chanel is famous for having affairs with lots of men, but it's entirely possible, indeed likely, that she also had affairs with women because this was very, very common in her milieu. For example, uh, her first famous boyfriend, Etienne Balsain, uh, she was his secondary girlfriend, and his primary girlfriend, Emilion d'Alencon, was a courtesan who was known to have affairs with lots of famous lesbians, including those portrayed by Toulouse-Lautrec. And many of Chanel's friends simply assumed that she and Messia Serre were not just friends, but girlfriends. We didn't want, however, just to focus on designers, but also on people throughout the LGBTQ communities who might be trendsetters or push fashions forward. And it's not only as fashion professionals that gays and lesbians have influenced the world of style. Mar Marlena Dietrich, for example, a bisexual German actress, was once described as the best dressed man in Hollywood. And we were very pleased to be able to get um, half a dozen of her looks from the Berlin Film Museum, which we then showed uh, in relation to other clothes, not only from the 1930s, but also in connection with the famous Le Smoking that Yves Saint Laurent designed, and which he attributed specifically to being influenced by Dietrich's style. We also have a dressing gown by Noel Coward and other clothes worn by figures who were often not publicly known to be gay because people were very often extremely discreet about it except within their circle. So Noel Coward, for example, upbraided Cecil Beaton for looking too effeminate and too obviously gay. And Coward said, I myself would dearly love to match my necktie and my handkerchief and my socks, but I know that this kind of thing could get me in trouble. You have to be very careful, he said, and not give the public uh, something to lampoon you with. So here we see again one of the shots of the exhibition. Now certain artistic professions such as fashion and the performing arts have historically provided a relatively tolerant haven for LGBTQ people. Yet faced with a homophobic society, most of the people had to still remain discreet in public and closeted to outsiders. So here we have dresses by designers like Dior, Balenciaga, and uh, Maimbache, Malina, who were not widely known to be gay outside the fashion world. Although in recent years their biographers have shown that they were gay and talked about how often they had long-term relationships which were accepted. But back in the period right after World War II, Chanel herself was uh, made a number of wildly homophobic statements about people like Dior and Balenciaga, describing them as queens who'd never had women, so they, want, they wanted to uh, be women, and they made women look like transvestites. Interesting because in the 20s and 30s she'd been jealous of her female competitors, people like Madeleine Vianney, uh, who was probably bisexual. But after the war when she had primarily male competitors, she engaged uh, in openly homophobic discourse, often uh, in discussions with gay men. 
Here you see more examples of Dior and Balmain dresses. And this is a wonderful image showing some of the sort of secret codes such as the red necktie. So um, red necktie, suede shoes, etc., were some of the signifiers that gay people used to communicate to other gay people uh, that most straight people wouldn't recognize. This is a wonderful drawing by Hillary Knight, which uh, he drew remembering how he had gone over to visit Charles James's studio with one of his assistants and then trying on various evening coats that James had designed. The post-war period was characterized by a real Kulturkampf, a, a very strong right-wing reaction against gays and lesbians, much stronger than had been the case in the 20s and 30s. So it's not just that fashion and society became gradually more welcoming. There have always been these back and forth um, movements uh, where greater tolerance was followed by greater repression. And the 50s were a real period of witch hunts. So fearing exposure and arrest, most homosexuals became in effect invisible men. And lesbians as well tended to try and conceal their sexual identity. This began to change as with political um, lobbying and demonstrations that began to result slowly in changes in the legal and civil rights of gay men and lesbians. And gays pioneered things like the Peacock Revolution and menswear. One of the uh, two outfits that we have here, those two um, kaftans in the back, the multicolored ones, are by Rudy Gernreich. It's very interesting because Gernreich was not only himself a gay designer, but he was one of the founding members of the Mattachine Society, one of the first gay liberation organizations in America. However, he resigned from it after a year because he was terrified that he would be discovered, fired, and even possibly deported. So late in life, he said in an interview how so many gay designers were really afraid of being fired. and the, being gay was illegal in so many places, and even if it wasn't actually illegal, it was so socially stigmatized that up until the era of Stonewall, most people concealed their sexuality. The Stonewall riots, of course, took place on June 28, 1969, when police raided a Greenwich Village bar, triggering resistance, particularly among drag queens. And after that, there were distinct differences in the way LGBTQ people lived their lives and also the way they dressed. Pre-Stonewall, the most visible gay male style had been elegance, camp, or drag. And post-Stonewall, the clone emerged to symbolize modern macho gay style. Lesbian style also evolved as traditional butch femme dress codes were increasingly replaced by androgynous anti-fashion style. And then with time, LGBTQ styles also diversified under the influence of subcultures such as punk and disco. Here you see, of course, the notorious Yves Saint Laurent perfume advertisement from the 70s. And then you see a number of looks, uh, men's suits by Saint Laurent, Disco dresses by Halston. Uh, you can see Simon Doonan's punk uh, kilt and leggings in the center. And other outfits, Klaus Nomi's look, Quentin Crisp's look, etc. The Cockats. Our exhibition breaks in the middle with the AIDS crisis. 
which devastated the gay community and triggered a new wave of prejudice against homosexuals. Since 1981, when HIV virus uh, was identified as being the cause of AIDS, more than 30 million people have died of AIDS-related diseases. Groups like ACT UP and Queer Nation demonstrated against the high cost of treatment and the government's failure to deal effectively with the epidemic. And many people in the fashion industry also um, supported DIFA and AMFAR as they worked for HIV prevention, treatment, and care. But it really was necessary to have this big protest movement because it was a period where I think we tend to forget there was real waves of homophobia both throughout society when conservatives said that it was God's will that homosexuals were being punished or argued that they should be put in concentration camps. And even within the fashion industry, it became harder and harder to get funding for male designers. They had to take AIDS tests, and there was still tremendous prejudice and fear, because at first nobody really knew what was causing the gay plague. So the back platform is devoted to this period of the AIDS crisis, and includes outfits, by designers who died of AIDS, as well as a range of t-shirts, which were political t-shirts and other gay t-shirts um, that marked a really crucial moment in the history of gay life and culture. Now, towards the end of the 20th century, gay sensibility became more overt in fashion and advertising. And this was an expression both of gay pride and, I think, of straight consumers' fascination with images of distinction and nonconformity. The French designer Jean-Paul Gaultier uh, was unafraid of playing fast and loose with sex and gender stereotypes, promoting underwear as outerwear, skirts for men. And this platform includes a number of looks by Gaultier as well as by Mugler. We see here, for example, the pink sailor suit that Gautier loaned us for the show. Sexuality exerted a very increasingly strong influence on style during the 1990s. Um, another openly gay designer, Gianni Versace, uh, drew on uh, gay styles for many of his looks, both for men and women. Uh, we have these wonderful uh, menswear ensembles that were loaned by Hal Rubinstein, who will be speaking. And when you go through the exhibition, there are quotes from Hal, and he'll talk about, for example, how um, Versace said, now you tie one of these colorful Baroque shirts around your waist, and you have the other one open over your chest, and then wear shorts or white pants and go skateboarding down along Ocean Drive, he said, and I guarantee they'll be running after you. Um, Versace, of course, also famously drew on the look of leather sex with his 1992 bondage collection. And we have a part of a platform which is devoted to leather and how it moved from subcultures, uh, both the gay leather sex uh, subculture and also heterosexual S&M fashions, into high fashion. Now, Many people were shocked by this look in 92, and there were big editorial articles in the New York Times saying, you know, was it chic or was it cruel? Was it oppressive to women or liberating? Other designers have been exploring this earlier, too. Claude Montana and Azadine Alaya had pioneered the use of leather, and so had Versace. 
He said in an interview in 92 that 10 or 15 years earlier, he tried to do a little show in Dallas where he showed a lot of leather fashions. And he said, they turned the lights up on us. They said these clothes belong only in a leather bar. He said, and now look, in 1992, 200 socialites in bondage. <laughs> said John Bartlett, leather look. Uh, this is a Butch Chanel photograph in our catalog. Another photograph of Gay Pride Parade in Sydney. John Bartlett in uniform on the cover of Out magazine. We now have seen that leather and uniforms, which were formerly uh, associated with sexual subcultures, have really now become completely mainstream in both men's and women's fashion. Suits are another area where, as Anne Hollander pointed out, uh, underneath what seems like a very serious look, there is a kind of potent beauty in sexuality. So we have a section here with suits, various suits by Tom Ford for Gucci, Jill Sonder, etc. We have more here. Um, Opus 9 suit and a variety of other looks for women. Here we have uh, our cover girl for the book. And additional looks drawing on other gay and lesbian styles. So as you go through the show, you'll see, for example, how the plaid shirt, which had emerged in the 70s as a look, is one which continues to influence both gay and lesbian styles and high fashion. Dissident ways of viewing fashion have resulted in queer sensibilities that embrace both idealizing and transgressive styles. Skirts and dresses for men and also looks which are intended to make the wearer look as beautiful and idealized as possible. Over the past century, many of the most influential designers have been gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. And when Fred and I worked on this show for two years, in conjunction with an advisory council of professors at FIT and advisors from around the world, we felt that it was about time that the contributions of LGBTQ people were acknowledged. Indeed, we think that not to explore their influence would be to participate in a climate of secrecy and shame that has too often surrounded same-sex love. The word queer, of course, has long been pejorative, but it's increasingly been accepted by younger people within the LGBT community. And by calling our exhibition a queer history of fashion, we wanted to emphasize that it was time for a new and different history, one that takes account of the contributions, both individual and collective, of generations of LGBTQ people. And when we ended with uh, the marriage section, it was not because we wanted necessarily to be you know, promoting bourgeois marriage, but rather wanting to promote the idea that gay rights are civil rights. They're human rights, which includes, of course, the right to love and the right to marry. And so we hadn't planned it, but fortunately the defeat of DOMA occurred uh, very uh, optimal timing for our exhibition. So thank you very much.